Welcome to the Tall Poppies podcast. To find out more about our guests or the content of the program, including information about the musical excerpts, visit our website at tall-poppies.com. Hello, Brendan O'Shea here. A very warm welcome to this, the second series of Tall Poppies, the podcast that introduces you to Australian luminaries around the world. It's nice to have you with me. It's been a busy few months since the last podcast. Thanks for your emails. It's good to know that so many of you share my thirst to discover more about these exceptional Australians and are also searching for a platform where these guests can share their views about important aspects of Australian culture. You might like to help out some more by becoming a sponsor of the podcast. By doing so, you'd be supporting my work researching, interviewing and producing these podcasts. Becoming a sponsor is easy. Simply visit the podcast homepage, tall-poppies.com, and click on the support page where you can find the link to Patreon. Now, this is a special service for producers of original content, such as this podcast. There, you can decide how you might assist the podcast. It really is that easy. That's tall-poppies.com, and remember to click on the support page. To those of you who already support the podcast, a very big thank you. You really do make sure this project keeps going. An interesting development in 2019 was the establishment of the Tall Poppies Talk Australian Salon in Berlin. Now, If you're not familiar with the term salon in this context, it simply refers to a small gathering of people where the discussions of the evening focus on current cultural events. I suspect that the Tall Poppies Talk Salon might just be the first Australian salon to take place in Berlin. At each of these events, one exceptional Australian is our guest of honour for the evening. The Salon brings together many enthusiastic guests from Berlin's diverse artistic and academic community, as well as prominent business people, politicians and journalists. Now, they all have one thing in common. They're keen to meet these phenomenal Aussies and, most importantly, get to know more about their work. If you are in Berlin and would like to attend a Tall Poppies Talk Australian Salon, drop us a line at info at tool-poppies.com That's info at tool-poppies.com Indeed, one of our guests of honour at a recent Tall Poppies Talk Salon was this episode's guest, the award-winning Australian writer Gail Jones. I'm interested in many things. I'm a generalist in my intellectual life and I find that any kinds of research that I do feed me imaginatively and I've never really accepted the head and heart distinction. Mm. I've always thought that that's part of our cultural heritage that doesn't represent the real world of feeling or the real world of the mind. Gail Jones hails from Western Australia where she grew up in the towns of Kalgoorlie and Broome and studied in Perth at the Western Australia University. She's currently Professor of Writing in the Writing and Society Research School at the Western Sydney University. 
Gail is one of Australia's most celebrated writers at home. Her work has received several major accolades, including the 2019 Australian Prime Minister's Prize for Literature. While abroad, Gail's fiction has been translated into 15 languages and long-listed for esteemed prizes, such as the Man Booker Prize and the Orange Prize. To date, Gail's written seven novels, which include the titles Sixty Lights, A Guide to Berlin and The Death of Noah Glass, as well as two short story collections and a critical monograph. In her 2007 novel titled Sorry, readers familiar with Australian history will quickly recognise Gail reflecting on her native country's controversial relationship with its Indigenous people. What we do have in Australia is an extremely vigorous Aboriginal community, proud of their culture and with vigorous participation in the arts, but also, as we know, suffering extraordinary rates of incarceration and uh, social disadvantage. We're a very unusual culture, very distinctive in our colonial settler history and the fact that we still haven't resolved things. But everywhere you go, Australians will take pride in Aboriginal artistic achievements while not acknowledging the social disadvantage that still exists. For me, this is an, an excruciating contradiction. Her 2014 novel, A Guide to Berlin, takes its title from a short story of the same name by Russian writer Vladimir Nabrokov. One of the stories that I particularly loved was a story called A Guide to Berlin, which is a story about where two men in a pub are talking about Berlin. And they talk about what attracts them to Berlin. And, and what attracts him is actually small, everyday details. So he talks about being on a tram. He talks about the tram conductor's uniform and the little leather pouch at his waist and the way his fingers fumble for the change. And what he sees looking out the window, he sees a butcher carrying a crimson and gold slab of meat on his shoulder. And he sees the pipes in Berlin. And he sees all these sort of objects that he invests with a kind of tenderness and radiance and says, this is actually what I love about Berlin. It's not the monuments. So it's not the monumental, it's the everyday. Gail's most recent book, The Death of Noah Glass, is inspired by art and explores grief, happiness, the importance of memory and the mystery of time. The Death of Noah Glass book is about um, an art historian. And so it is, it is fundamentally about images. What does it mean to give one's life to the study of images? More specifically, images that are, you know, four centuries old. Mm. And, and again, for me, it's partly about this idea of the multi-temporal or the polytemporal, that we are polytemporal, that we, are, we might have an encounter with a 15th century painting, then we might have an encounter with something that was made this year with this year's sort of generic. Well, I caught up with Gail Jones here in Berlin during her most recent visit to the German capital, a special location for the author, as it's where much of her writing takes place. Gail Jones, thank you so much for some time here in Berlin and coming on the podcast. My it's a great pleasure to have you to, to actually talk about this rather passionate almost relationship you have with Berlin. Well, it is a passionate relationship. Uh, it began as a, um, an awkward one. I, I used to visit to do readings. I had some early books translated into German. I used to come always in November, always when it was dark and cold, from 
Summary Australia. And I, I only ever stayed in Berlin for a few days, and I just didn't get it. I found it inhospitable, inhuman, with a sort of inhumane scale to it. And then I gradually started coming back a little longer and ended up with a one-year fellowship with the DAAD, the Artist Fellowship, in 2014. And that was when I really learned to love Berlin. Mm-hmm. And part of it is is actually the sense of time that I find so stimulating as a writer. So for me, time is enormously important thematically, structurally, in terms of how my imagination works, the idea of the historical, the idea that we are always multi-temporal, that we're in many times at once. And Berlin reminds me of that. It provokes that in me. It provokes a kind of meditative self that makes it easier to write here. And I find the history of the place, I find its levels of culture, of history, of trauma, of melancholy, all of these things deeply compelling. Let's go, of course, to one of the most major things in 2014 and the fact that actually you wrote a whole book about Berlin, which in many ways is about Berlin, but at the same time it's also a homage to a great writer. You bring the focus to his short stories and it's been quite quite wonderful to discover some of those through actually reading your book about Berlin as well. I'd always been a fan of Nabokov's writing. When I had my residency in Wilmersdorf, I discovered that I lived a few streets away from where Nabokov had lived. We should just explain, Wilmersdorf is, of course, a suburb of Berlin, uh, and it's in the west. We talk a lot about the east and the west here in Berlin, yes? Yes, indeed, indeed. And so Nabokov was um, lived in Wilmersdorf as a young man, was writing short stories mostly. He was, of course, in exile. This was not his city, and he had very little German. He didn't like German, so he didn't learn German. Uh, He was teaching English and Russian. And one of the stories that I particularly loved was a story called A Guide to Berlin, which is a story about where two men in a pub are talking about Berlin. And they talk about what attracts them to Berlin, and, well, one man does, And what attracts him is actually small, everyday details. So he talks about being on a tram. He talks about the tram conductor's uniform and the little leather pouch at his waist and the way his fingers fumble for the change. And what he sees looking out the window, he sees a butcher carrying a a crimson and gold slab of meat on his shoulder. And he sees the pipes in Berlin. And he sees all these sort of objects that he invests with a kind of tenderness and radiance and says, this is actually what I love about Berlin. It's not the monuments. So it's not the monumental, it's the everyday. And as one reads the story, um, as it unfolds, you realize it's a story about time and wounding. This is a man wounded from the war. And that it's about art itself. It's about what literature does. And there's actually a little paragraph right towards the end where the old man says, this is what literature is, and this is its function. It's to select those everyday moments and objects that seem so sort of blank to us now, but in the light of the future, will have a a sort of 
He talks about it as a, um, an exoticism and uh, um, an exuberance and something, some quality. They will be invested with a quality because in the future they will be regarded as something wonderful. And that this tram conductor's uniform will look like some fabulous costume that a man is wearing to a masquerade. Now, so, so we have so many elements in this one little story about mourning, about injury, about the way that a writerly intelligence invests the everyday with a precious sort of glistening quality. And we have time. We have a, a sort of insistence that we need to look at things outside our own time to find in them their specificity and their kind of compelling specificity. And it's a bit like that moment when one is in a museum and you lean forward over a glass case and look at some very ordinary thing mm. and marvel at it. And so that, that from our moment in time, looking backwards, we are giving it this, what he calls this tenderness. So there was that story, above all, and then there was Nabokov's biography called Speak Memory. And this is a very, very famous autobiography, a collection of sort of quasi-stories, quasi-memoir, um, discontinuous, with some extraordinary writing in it, some extraordinarily good, compelling writing. And I wanted to bring those two together, and I wanted to think about what does it mean to walk in the street that Nabokov walked, to stand in front of his building and think, what was it like for him as an exile? There's no comparison being made here. I'm not mm. Nabokovian. And nor is my style, but I, what I wanted was that, that sense of, of the mystery of conjunction, of what it means when those of us from outside of Berlin come to this place, what do we see and what do we cherish? And I also wanted this idea of story, what stories do we attach to biographically that make sense of our own dislocation? So that novel, which was called A Guide to Berlin, and I found it in guidebook sections of bookshops, which is a little dismaying. But that book is about um, a group of outsiders, none of whom are Berliners, about two Japanese, two Italians, an Australian and American, who all come together in a kind of parlor game to speak their own memories in, in response to Nabokov's example. It has a death in it, it has tragedy, and it has this captivation with the image, this interest in Berlin as a city of the image, and Berlin as also a city of tragedy, and how, how we pull those together in an honourable way. I didn't want it to be sensationalist, mm. I want it to be about narrative and about images in a modest and honourable way. I'm not sure if you found it to be so... <laughs> I certainly did. I have a, a couple of other questions. Though. You mentioned also events leading up to him coming to Berlin before that. It's quite a story. Tell us a little bit about how you stumbled on that. Okay, so I'm interested in Nabokov's biography. Not just speak memory, but the biography of him, the famous Brian Boyd, three-volume mm. biography. Brian Boyd is a New Zealander who's devoted his life to Nabokov's studies. But Nabokov was... Um, a student at Cambridge studying French and English. His family were living in Berlin, so his family were exiles. They were not exactly white Russians. His father was a constitutional lawyer. With the coming to power of the Bolsheviks in 1917, his father had to leave Russia. They went to Georgia. They went, I think, to Italy for a while, and they ended up in Berlin. So there was, as we know, a large expatriate Russian community, especially white Russians, in Berlin. 
Meanwhile, Nabokov and his younger brother Sergei went to study in Cambridge. Then he heard the news that his father had been assassinated in Berlin. So his father had been in a town hall, in a rathaus. There'd been a debate about Russian politics and the Russian constitution. And um, a man with a gun had entered the hall and aimed at his opponent in the debate. And in one of these random, strange and haphazard historical moments, his father had taken the bullet, as it were, for his opponent. Nabokov was summoned back. He was by then, uh, let me think, 22 years old, I think. He adored his father. He was the oldest son. He came back to the city in mourning, and in mourning for his father, who died not just in an heroic fashion, but in a fashion that he considered absurdist. He hated the happenstance of it, you know, what the you know, French civilists call the hazard, the, yeah. the pure chance of him being in the wrong place at the wrong time and actually not being the intended object of assassination. So Nabokov then stayed with his mother and sisters uh, and ended up settling here for a few years until the rise of Nazism. His wife was Jewish and he left. But I think that for him, therefore, Berlin was marked by mourning. It was marked by exile and dislocation and the wish to sort of write his way out of that. And I'm very interested, Brendan, in the relationship between writing and mourning. Mm. So how writing is a mechanism to cope with loss. How we do, in fact, produce people who are not there on the page. Uh, reading is a communing with ghosts and mm. writing is a communing with ghosts. What struck me about the early stories, he wrote so many in his 20s here in Berlin, what struck me was that so many of them were about old men mourning for boys or for their sons. So his way of dealing with this ghastly death of his father was to invert the sequence of mourning, to imagine himself as the one still alive mourning the young man. And there was something so poignant and so disturbing about that gesture. So it's, it's a, and so in a sense ingenious mm. as, as a way of dealing with his own inadmissible grief. You have also said that writing is a particular type of thinking, way of thinking for you. Can you explain that a little bit more? I think of the novel in particular as a way of thinking through things, but it is not a logical way of thinking. It's thinking with feeling, and it's a kind of thinking that doesn't divide the head and the heart. There's a quote by Tolstoy which I like to repeat, where Tolstoy says that the function of art is to make understood that which, if presented as an argument, would be incomprehensible. So I was trained as an academic, mm. I was trained in argument, in following you know, logically a proposition to its conclusion. And what I find so emancipating about writing is that it doesn't function as argument. You cannot translate a novel into an argument because a novel is digressive. It's even the most linear novel has digressions. It has competing spaces, competing imaginaries different character and site locations of thinking and feeling and every reader responds to every novel individually mm. and might respond to a particular image or character and so this liberty this immense liberty of the novel 
whose ramifications are everywhere, <laughs> whose center is nowhere and whose ramifications are everywhere. Um, I, I love that. I love that as a different mode of cognition. So it is a kind of thinking, but it's not thinking in terms of argument or linear rationality. So for me, uh, I mean, I love stories, but, but I've really grown to love the novel for this kind of freedom of real intellectual exercise. I'm just trying to, as an academic, but also as a, a writer and a, and a very successful writer of, of fiction, then is, is there sometimes a sort of a, a struggle? Which one do you find the more powerful or, or do you use them differently? Uh, well, I'm often, you know, asked about, the, you know, doesn't your critical self get in the way of your creative <laughs> self? And I don't see a division. Uh. I really don't. So I'm interested in many things. I'm a generalist uh, in my intellectual life. And I find that any kinds of research that I do uh, feed me imaginatively. And I don't, I've always, I've never really accepted the head and heart distinction. Mm. I've always thought that that's part of our um, cultural heritage that doesn't represent the real world of feeling or the real world of the mind. And one of the reasons I'm attracted to Nabokov is that he talks about the adventure of consciousness, that just having a consciousness is such an adventure. There's so much that goes on in our heads mm. that, that we can't really, uh, we can't often speak to others about we can't translate to ourselves uh you know that that we know through symbols or metaphors rather than through words all of that uh that i mean this is sounding very grandiose mm. <laughs> and perhaps extravagant in its claims but i think all of that happens in the world of the novel it reminds us of the adventure of consciousness and so I've never felt that the critical and the creative compete. I think they do, they're um, contiguous and mutually supportive. Growing up in Western Australia, what were the first things that you actually started to read that sparked this passion for literature? Uh, well, I think, in fact, it was sparked by cinema. My, my ah. interest was in narrative rather than in reading. Uh, so where we lived, there was no lending library. We had very few books, uh, but we did have cinema. So Broome had, has still the oldest outdoor cinema in Australia called the Sun Pictures. Mm. A Japanese man started these pictures 120 years ago, which really is a very old cinema. You sat outside, the children sat under the stars, the adults sat under a piece of tin and we watched B-grade movies two a week. So although we didn't live in the town of Broome, we drove in every Saturday night to see the double feature. Now what that gave me, I think, was an interest in the image and an interest in stories told in images and my love and my obsession was with cinema. I really only started reading in high school and then in late high school. So unlike many writers, I cannot, I don't have a glamorous, romantic story about first discovering reading and thinking I wanted to be a writer. I never had an ambition to be a writer. Um, and certainly not until my 30s did I even think about it. So I envy those people who have these epiphanic moments mm. and these you know, gloriously packaged stories to tell. And I, I've been to many writers' festivals and heard many of them. But I actually don't really have a story like that. 
Right. I have a story about watching B-grade cowboy movies and, <laughs> you know, and sort of, and, and then replaying them in my head and yeah. talking to myself about them and, yeah. Yet it was Sunset Boulevard that actually kicked off the idea for Noah, wasn't it? Well, that's one of the many movies mm. mentioned in that book. Sunset Boulevard is a movie that I've taught in a cinema course. It's a movie I've seen many times and know very well. And what I always loved was the opening scene of a body floating in a swimming pool. And you watch this body floating face down, and and then the voice begins. The voice of the dead man begins, and you realize that this is a posthumous movie, that the movie is told by the dead man. So that I love that as a structure, as a sort of, as a kind of artistic notion of what does it mean if only the dead man knows the story and other people around him are reconstructing and that the opening is is actually his death and then you go backwards. It's not unusual for detective stories to move backwards from the dead body but it's very unusual to have the dead body as the narrator. And this voice, the voice comes through again and again in the, the movie and you're reminded that it's a ghost who's telling the story. And I, I, I mean, I think that's a brilliant movie. I've always thought that movie is sort of astonishing. And it's a movie that has within it, I don't know if you recall this. Anyway, this famous silent movie act, actor is looking at her own silent movies in, her, in this speaking yeah. movie. So it, it's partly about how do you tell a story in cinema? What does it mean if a dead man owns the story? What are the relations between men and women? You know, there's so much going on there. And visually, it's, it's, um, it's very clever. It's part of the noir tradition. You know, um, old Cadillacs driving up smoky driveways in, you know, with shadows falling across the bonnet and, <laughs> you know, people's faces reflected in puddles. Very N- Nabokovian sort of... Yeah, we're back very <laughs> Yes, yeah. yeah. Yet it is an image that will become a whole novel, right? Yes, The Death of Noah Glass book is about um, an art historian. And and so it is it is fundamentally about images. What does it mean to give one's life to the study of images? More specifically, images that are, you know, four centuries old. Mm. And and again for me it's partly about this idea of the multi-temporal or the polytemporal. I mean, that novel is set in both Italy and Australia, or more specifically in Palermo and in Sydney, and part in Western Australia and part in Adelaide. It's a bit it's Australia and Italy, but one of the things that struck struck me in Italy is that you walk into a early Renaissance church and you see a Caravaggio painting. Mm. You might walk out into the sunlight and there's that dazzling slant of light that is another image and see on a hoarding um, a poster for a circus and a poster for a Bruce Willis movie. <laughs> and and there's something about that that radical coalition or that radical juxtaposition that I just find very exciting. And it does remind me that, that we negotiate with many times that we are polytemporal, that we are we might have an encounter with a 15th century painting, then we might have an encounter with something that was made this year with this year's sort of generic modalities and so on. And and then something like a circus painting called Orfeo, you know, the Orfeo mm. circus in Italy has a very long history. It's a sort of 19th century image. 
And I just remember that moment, standing in a shaft of sunlight, having seen a Caravaggio, seen Bruce Willis's face, seen um, a circus poster, and thought, this is magnificent. There's something joyous and astonishing about being in a... And we have this everywhere. I'm not just saying it's, mm. it's, it's just Italian. But this idea of the multiplicity of our beings, that is also a multi-temporality that you think about different times at the moment, you are seeing different images. I love that idea, and it, it, it excites me as a writer. It was indeed an Italian fresco that actually started mm. that idea. Tell us about that experience and how that led then to Noah. So the story of, of Noah is of, in many old frescoes, including in Monreale in Palermo. There's a very beautiful fresco of the story of Noah. This is a story that has always troubled me. As a child, I found it actually very distressing, this story of Noah. I couldn't understand why other people were not distressed by the idea of the whole world drowning and just one family being saved, the virtuous family. It's, it's always had a, a real sort of moral, querulous quality for me, if I can put it so awkwardly. The story of Noah is that he's the most virtuous man on the planet, therefore he is saved from the inundation, the inundation of the world with his family and his three sons. In the, the famous fresco in Monreale, there are depictions of drowning people, which ver struck me enormously, that, that you see heads bobbing out of the water and there's an upturned body with a, a crow pecking at the chest. I mean, a really striking visual image in anyone's repertoire. So there, there, are, there is Noah in the ark peering out at these drowning bodies. There's the arrival of the ark at Ararat. And then there's the story of Noah's drunkenness, which is much, much less well known. Noah becomes a viticulturalist. He becomes a farmer. He grows grapevines and he becomes drunk. And one of the famous points in Genesis is where his three sons see him drunk. Two of them cover his body, but the third mock, mocks him. And this idea that, that the outcome of this story is not... The most virtuous man in the world is being mocked by his son. There's so much going on in that narrative that I found really irresistible in terms of ideas of... You know, the opposite of, of virtue is not vice, it's shame. Mm. It's the idea that one cannot stand before one's son. It's things, it's human weakness, like drunkenness. You know, the, the Bible, in every tradition, in the Jewish, Islamic, and Christian tradition, Noah is the most virtuous man in the world. But he's also the man who gets drunk and is exposed naked before his son. The son is cursed for seeing him naked and mocking him. And he becomes the father of the African... You know, all human beings came from the three sons of Noah. He becomes the father of the Africans, who will be condemned to be slaves. So throughout the centuries, this story has been used as the biblical justification for slavery, the sons of Ham, the son who mocked Noah. So it, it resonates on so many levels uh, about fathers and sons, about what is a human life worth, what does it mean to be saved, or to be drowned, the whole idea of the drowned and the saved. And what does it mean to, to be mocked? Where, where does virtue lie? And then how all of this becomes textualized and used as a justification historically for slavery. So it's, it's a fascinating story. And just recently in Berlin, there was Bellini's 
drunkenness of Noah painting was the very last painting Bellini did. He was 85 years old. Mm. And the story there is that he depicts himself as an old man. So there's also an anxiety about masculinity, about someone seeing the old man's body. And I find that so moving. Mm. So, you know, such a... That, that, at that very level, at the level of the Bellini painting, you have Noah looking frail and his three sons are robust, you know, sitting behind him. And there's something essentially narrative, but also morally kind of troubling about that, that story. Well, let's look at the, the family of Noah in your novel. They're pretty dysfunctional, aren't they? They are dysfunctional, um, but, but they're dysfunctional through grief. Mm. And so uh, it's, uh, it is a, a novel partly about grief and the way it undoes oneself. And so he has a, a grown son who, called Martin, who is a, an artist, and a daughter who was a philosopher and is now sort of unemployed and a bit lost. And he has raised them, his children himself, because he was widowed as a young man. So they are living with the unresolved death of their mother, or grief about their mother. You know, I mean, Freud talks about grief as a kind of labour, you have to do it. Grief is work, you've got to do the, the morning work, and then move on. Mm. And, I, and I, I don't know what I think about that anymore, right? but I don't think there's closure. I think that there are, there's a wounding and one learns to live with the wound. And I, I mean, the French philosopher Maurice Blanchot talks about this writing within the wound, accepting that we're all a bit damaged, we've all experienced loss and grief. And and what might it mean to to write from within the wound, which in his own very artificial way Nabokov did. And I mean, artificial, not as a pejorative, mm. that he highly artificed his own grief and kept on recapitulating that artifice I think, from that wound of the loss of his father. So that, that kind of connection between feeling and art interests me a lot. In the coral light of a summer dawn, Martin Glass recalled a tale. Two brothers in the late 70s attended the funeral of their father aged 42. The father had disappeared as a young man skiing across country, and in an unseasonable thaw years later, his frozen body had been exposed. The bright sun shine upon him, ice melted and slid away, and he became a gruesome, implausible and shiny surprise. The trekker who discovered him felt both lucky and appalled. The body might have been a slow-motion swimmer lifting through the surface of the water. First his nose met the air, then his leathery cheeks, then his damp face with eyes closed was revealed to the sky of Chamonix. Martin imagined the two brothers identifying their father, looking baffled at a version of themselves when young. The corpse was part figurine, with skin hardened and made inhuman by preservation like those bogmen, he supposed, who have the appearance of wood. The father's clothes would have been old-fashioned and possibly familiar. Perhaps his sons saw again a particular scarf, red and cosy, or recognised a belt or a woollen hat, or gloves they remembered, stretched long ago over the flexing star of his fingers. As perhaps they stared at these details in order not to dwell on the face. 
Perhaps one of them thought mummy, in a fleeting irreverent second, struck with the impertinence that might come with accident or death. They would have been silent, observed by strangers, formerly bereft, looking down at their dead, impossible father. Both must have felt the collapse of time. One brother, the younger, died three weeks after the funeral. The older followed a few months later. Though he'd not thought of it for years, Martin was awoken by this story. Three faces alike, sorry timing, mortal coil. The vex of an accident, its meaninglessness. It afforded the interest of a chance occurrence seeming supernatural. Each man anticipates looking at the face of his old father, possibly standing by the deathbed, possibly assessing his own mortality in the presence of the patriarch. This inversion in sequence compelled and fascinated him. As he lay half dozing on his back, Martin saw himself as the ice man, confronting the white wall of an untimely death. very prolific you every two years almost you have a new new novel out and we first met in 2008 mm -hmm. I remember that quite well because your book sorry had just been released in Germany and it was also the year the Australian Prime Minister apologized to the first peoples of Australia it was quite a special year for many of us mm -hmm. we thought that perhaps finally something mm -hmm. had happened you grew up in Western Australia, which is where Sorry all takes place mm -hmm. and is all about. And since we've got to know each other in, over the years, I've also found out that you, you had two brothers and one of them also worked within the Aboriginal communities as well, and both of them, mm -hmm. right? You have quite a lot of insight into that particular aspect of Australia. Can you tell me a little bit where you think we are in 2020, 2019, 2020? That's a difficult question. I'm, I'm not sure that I have more insight than anyone else. I think I was lucky enough to grow up into interesting places. One was outside of Broome, so I went to school in Broome, which was a very multicultural town when I was a child, before it became a tourist resort. Um, and also in the goldfields in Kalgoorlie and Boulder. Mm. Uh, and again, for a writer, that's, that's an interesting and in some ways difficult location to grow up in. So I didn't come to the big city of Perth until I was a teenager, until I was 15. I suppose that because both of my brothers have spent their careers on Indigenous communities, and my parents also worked for a time at Elko Island in northeastern Arnhem Land. So for this reason, I've met many Aboriginal people and been on communities and grew up in areas like the Kimberleys. And my, my doctorate actually was in ethnography. Mm. It was, it was in, on race, issues of race and Aboriginal anthropology. So this is a long-standing interest of mine, but the interest, I don't claim special knowledge. What I have, I think, is a narrative interest in ethics, in what it means to be a white Australian living on unceded land. To, to assume that white people have a right to be there and it has never ever been granted or ceded. And so to be on someone else's sovereign nation, to know the history the, of depredation, to wonder what, what it means to be part of that history, 
those are the things that remain with me and they haven't gone away and that book was written in 2007 when Howard had refused to make an apology so it was written in a spirit of pessimism and despair that I thought the reconciliation movement has failed but we still don't have a treaty and we have seen the refusal of the sorry the Uluru statement from the heart that came out last year by the then Turnbull government it was dismissed out of hand so we're not we haven't really made much progress what we do have in Australia is an extremely vigorous Aboriginal community proud of their culture and with vigorous participation in the arts but also as we know suffering extraordinary rates of incarceration and uh, social disadvantage. We're a very unusual culture, very distinctive in our colonial settler history and the fact that we still haven't resolved things. But everywhere you go, Australians will take pride in Aboriginal artistic achievements while not acknowledging the social disadvantage that still exists. For me, this is an excruciating contradiction. What I very much got the picture of it in Sorry is that you actually got a glimpse into the Indigenous culture that most of us on the East Coast never did. Well, again, I'm not claiming any special knowledge. I mm-hmm. suppose, you know, I had friendships. When I, when I was a child, Broome was very small and really in decline. It had been a booming, pearling industry town. Then it had gone through a period where pearl shell was, was fished to make buttons then plastics came in and suddenly no one wanted pearl shell buttons anymore. So there was a period after that, sort of from sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, right up until the 80s, I think, of real decline in the town, full of poor misfits mostly. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, a thousand people of whom um, only 200 were considered white, and that included the children. And I'm using white in scare quotes Mm. there. But that meant it was an Aboriginal and Asian multiculture a town of Chinese, Japanese, Filipino and indigenous people, Yaro mostly people. And so I, what I had was the privilege of being inside an Aboriginal Asian multiculture and seeing what an exciting cultural space that was. You know, for a child, that was a... And for someone who did grow up to be a writer, that was a kind of gift, I think. Moving on, you've been spending a lot of time in Ireland of late. Brendan O'Shea would have to be interested in this connection, the Australia-Irish connection. Uh, I like the way you've become a third-person actor in this <laughs> interview. Why not? <laughs> so what does Brendan O'Shea think about this? <laughs> I'm waiting to find out. You have to tell me a little bit more about this, and I'll tell you what I think. <laughs> okay, so the novel that I've just completed is an Australian-Irish novel. Um, I'm interested in the Irish diaspora Mm. and I'm interested in all of those Irish who left after the hunger, after the Great Famine and I'm also interested in how many Irish came to Australia for the goldfields so they, after suffering the terrible famine in which a third of Ireland's population died um, in the 1850s, uh, 40s, 50s, so many of them left Uh, There was nothing at home, and so many Irish men and women left to find work and food, sustenance, a new life in Canada, in the USA, in New Zealand, and in Australia, and in South Africa, I mean, all over. It's it's a huge diaspora, but a large number of Irish came to Australia for the gold rushes. 
And I'm very interested in a character called Paddy Hannan, who discovered, in, again in scare quotes, discovered gold in Western Australia, at the place we now call Kalgoorlie in 1890s. He discovers gold and opens up the, the then biggest gold field on the planet. And, you know, within a week there are 10,000 men who are in this desert space where before, you know, they had not seen a white man. Mm. So the the idea of the gold rush, the idea of the rush interests me a lot. Things rushing and things going slow, what it means to rush somewhere in search of gold. Just to drop another name, yeah. I also met Anne Enright in Dublin, um, mm. the Booker-winning wow. novelist. Yes. And I was trying to describe to Anne the oddity of my project, and she said, when you get to County Clare, I won't do her accent, you know, walk into a pub and tell them what you're doing, and they'll start talking to you. And so emboldened, um, I pretended to be, you know, not a shy person, but a, a bold writer. I walked into a pub and said, I'm interested in a bloke called Paddy Hannan who lived in this town called Quinn. And I was led all over the place. I got to see many things I wanted to see. I met a lot of interesting people in both Dublin and in County Clare, in Ennis and in Quinn and that sort of area of County Clare. In amongst all of this, of course, one of the words that uh, we stumble onto is, of course, refugee, because I I am the grandson of Irish refugees. I see them as refugees. I have no problem with using this this term. My ancestors arrived on boats. Mm. Australia seems to have a big problem in this day and age with people that come to the country on boats it's more complex than that but what's your take on what's what's happening on that big island of ours as opposed to that small island off the coast of australia that's also become hell for a lot of people i assume you're referring to manus island yes yes i mean i think that one of I guess, I mean, there are refugees in my novel called A Guide to Berlin. Mm. There are refugees in The Death of Noah Glass. Um, I'm interested in people who are dislocated and often through circumstances of, of privation, danger, death, loss, you know. And Australia is um, a country that, you know, of which, if you're not indigenous, you came probably on a boat. Your ancestors came on a boat. Why we can't acknowledge this and be more generous to refugees now and obey our United Nations um, obligations, we're signatory to the Treaty on Refugees, which we do not obey, um, appalls me and dismays me. And it seems that, uh, you know, Burus Bachani has been released from Manus, but only in a sense by. Um, a de facto and surreptitious means. Mm. There was no goodwill on the part, there was no change of policy, there was no goodwill on the part of our government, there was no um, understanding that uh, these people are living in, in a legally and morally disgraceful situation. I suppose I'm agitating in a way in all of my writing for a recognition of the person who does not live where they begun and needs assistance and the ideas of hospitality, ideas that citizenry involve hospitality and the responsibility to others who have newly arrived, the idea of who has just arrived requiring care. That seems to me a fundamental part of 21st century ethics that we ought to learn and practice and I am deeply disappointed in the successive governments who have 
not met our refugee responsibilities. Any idea where this is coming from, this selfishness of the Australian people? Uh, I suppose what I would want to say is that there are also many people of goodwill and conscience yeah, who are working yes. against this, these policies. That yeah. what, what we've had are very unusual governmental arrangements, like minority and coalition governments, co- in coalition with, you know, fringe parties and fringe senators from Queensland, and you know, you know of whom I speak. So you know, there have been very, very unusual and very a lot of instability in government. I'm not sure that Australians are any more materialistic than anywhere else. Mm. I honestly don't know the answer to that. Uh, But I think that, I do think that the civic rhetoric has changed and that there is a sense that at the time of, I think of Tampa and civics, that there were this idea that if people came by boats, they were somehow delegitimized. That entered the public civic rhetoric and seems never to have gone away. There's still some odd idea that if you come on a boat, you do not have a claim to be cared for. And I, I mean, I see distortions and perversions of civic rhetoric in most nations in the UK at the moment and in America as well. My lament is that Australia, if you know the history of Australia, you know how socially progressive Australia was. I mean, it it has always had a racist past, but there have been, you know, there were forms of... We have a history that recognised, you know, widows and unemployed and, you know, gave benefits, social benefits very early. You know, we had, uh, you know, we have a universal health care. We have many advantages in Australia. And yet somehow that generosity is still not quite extending as it should. Mm. Uh, And I still do think there's an issue for Indigenous Australians who have a right to be upset. Um, I was at a ceremony in Leipzig last week at which Indigenous delegates from uh, Western Australia, South Australia and New South Wales received human remains back from the Dresden collection. But the ceremony was at the Grassi Museum in Leipzig. Now those indigenous people spoke with incredible generosity and passion about what it means in a sense to decolonize institutions and the way that some in Germany are leading the way Mm. in saying a museum cannot be what it used to be. A museum cannot hold human skeletons where we know the ancestors want them back. And I found all of that um, a sign of hope and it gave me a sense that that there's an unfolding of history in another direction, that there are now activists, for example, in the indigenous community who insist, in some ways to the embarrassment of white audiences, that 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 sample of hair also has spirit. I mean, people in the German audience told me they were astonished to hear this, that these people believed that hair has spirit a human trace to her spirit. And that idea, that radical idea of some sort of inalienable quality of humanness that needs to be reinstated to recover the ethical compass, I found that very inspiring and very hopeful. So I, I try not to despair and mm. I try not to give up. You know, we're not there yet. Quite a, a lot to think about there, that's for sure. You are 
one of three women in your family who are writers now. And there is, of course, this, this beautiful story of the, the late blooming of your mum as far as starting to write. It would be lovely to hear that story. Um, my mother wrote her first book when she was 70. Um, she's written two books and has a third sort of on the go. I think she's in her late 80s now. When we lived in Broome, she was very interested in... She became very interested in Japanese culture and especially in Japanese graves. Uh, so there's a Japanese cemetery in Broome and she decided to try to find a way, um, with the help of Japanese translators who she knew, to transcribe the names on all of the tombstones so that people in Japan would know where their relatives had been laid to rest and know who was there. And once she set up an archive of names, she became interested in their stories. And once she became interested in stories, she started going to Japan and meeting people and ended up writing a book about Japanese people in Western Australia up until the war. So during the war, many Japanese, as you know, were repatriated, including some who'd been born in Broome, who'd been born you know, as part of that pearling industry cohort um, of labourers who were exempt from the white Australia policy, which is why they were there. Mm. Uh, and she, yes, wrote a book that was then translated into Japanese, which was very exciting for her, so this book. Hmm. Magnificent. I'm trying to imagine the three of you getting together, your daughter, yourself and her grandmother. Is it um, a big exchange of work? Is it, do you have, discover that you've, you're all sort of working on the same sorts not, of things? Not really, you know. <laughs> I think that that's a very idealised, I know, we're, we're, we're there as family. We probably talk and joke about the same things that most mm. families share. Um, but it's, it's a wonderful thing for me to have a mother and a daughter who are both also writers. My daughter's a fiction writer as well as a non-fiction writer and my mother writes history. That's quite something. You must support each other in a way that others probably can't. I believe so, yes. (laughs) Gail Jones, it's been fantastic to have this time with you and to, to hear so many of those insights into your work. I thank you very much for coming on the podcast and we're all looking forward to that Irish novel, but of course I am in particular. Thank you. Well, thank you. More strength to you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Kat. The Australian writer Gail Jones with me there. And if you'd like to find out more about her work, do visit the Tall Poppies site. you find it at tall-poppies.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please pass it on by reposting on social media or forwarding the link. Don't forget the archive of other podcasts available on the Tall Poppies, the podcast site. There you can hear interviews with many of Australia's leading personalities, including the philosopher Peter Singer, the opera director Barry Kosky and the conductor Simone Young, to name but a few. For now, this is Brandon saying goodbye from Berlin. I look forward to having you back with me soon for the next edition of Tall Poppies, the podcast celebrating Australian luminaries around the world.